Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll examine the evolution of age-related clonal hematopoiesis, review the first systematic approach to uncover all possible activating point mutations within and around the transmembrane domain of the thrombopoietin receptor in myeloproliferative neoplasms, and discuss the role of complement activation and mutations in complement regulatory genes in patients with thrombotic or catastrophic antiphospholipid syndromes. First up, we have an intriguing topic related to clonal hematopoiesis. It is now well established that many normal individuals acquire mutations in hematopoietic stem cells that lead to the emergence of one or more dominant clones of blood cells, often termed clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, or CHIP, and sometimes also termed age-related clonal hematopoiesis, or ARCH. These mutations are age-related and may predispose some of these individuals to later develop amyloid disease, such as MDS or AML. However, the cause of these mutations is unknown. An important question is whether some individuals are genetically predisposed to acquire these mutations. In two fascinating studies published in blood, clonal hematopoiesis was examined in large numbers of elderly twins to assess the concordance, discordance, and mortality comparing identical or monozygotic versus fraternal or dizygotic pairs of twins. In the first paper, Faber and colleagues performed deep targeted sequencing of blood DNA from 52 monozygotic and 27 dizygotic twin pairs, aged 70 to 99 years, and found mutations in 62% of patients using a variant allele fraction of greater than or equal to 0.5% as a cutoff. They did not observe higher concordance for clonal hematopoiesis within monozygotic twin pairs compared to that within dizygotic twin pairs or to that expected by chance. However, they did identify two monozygotic pairs in which both twins harbored identical, rare somatic mutations, suggesting a shared cell of origin in utero. Finally, in three monozygotic twin pairs harboring mutations in the same driver genes, serial blood samples taken four to five years apart showed substantial twin-to-twin variability in clonal trajectories. In the second study, Hansen and colleagues similarly studied 299 pairs of twins aged 73 to 94 years, all with more than 20 years follow-up. 43% of the twin pairs were monozygotic, Clonal hematopoiesis mutations were identified in 38% of the twins, whereas 21 twin pairs had mutations within the same genes. The exact same mutation was only observed in two twin pairs. No significant difference in case-wise concordance between monozygotic and dizygotic twins were found for any specific gene, subgroup, or chip mutations overall, and no significant heritability could be detected. Further, in pairs discordant with the presence of chip mutations, the affected twin did not have a shorter survival than the unaffected twin. A total of 133 twin pairs were discordant for carrying a mutation 
and in 64, or 48% of the cases, the affected twin died first, with a p-value of 0.73. Overall, there was no evidence for a genetic predisposition to chip mutations in this twin study by Hansen. Additionally, the previously described negative association of chip mutations on survival could not be confirmed in a direct comparison among twin pairs that were discordant for chip mutations. Overall, both studies concluded that no hereditary component related to chip could be detected. Specifically, they found that elderly identical twins did not have the same level of chip or the same mutations, leading the authors of both studies to conclude that it is most likely the variability of chip in the population can be better explained by different environmental exposures. They also found that chip has a similar concordance levels in both monozygotic and dizygotic twins. This suggests that any possible germline determinants of chip are relatively common in the general population and probably have low impact. Interestingly, a few identical twins did share the exact same mutation, suggesting the possibility that the mutations first occurred in a common stem cell, possibly in utero. Finally, while other studies have suggested that CHIP may be associated with reduced survival, it did not appear to have a major effect on survival in these twin studies. Altogether, the important conclusions from these twin studies clearly illustrate that additional studies concentrating on the search for environmental contributors to CHIP are crucial. Next, we'll discuss a paper that reported an exhaustive study aimed at identifying all potentially activating single-point mutations within and around the transmembrane domain of the thrombopoietin receptor, also known as MPL. While the majority of patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms have mutations in the JAK2 tyrosine kinase, approximately 10% of patients without JAK2 mutations have mutations in the transmembrane domain of the MPL receptor that result in constitutive activation in the absence of thrombopoietin. The most commonly observed mutations reported in these patients are W515L or K or R or A or S505N. However, mutations at a few other sites within the transmembrane region of the MPL gene encoded by exon 10 have been reported as well. However, there are a number of remaining cases where the established driver mutations remain unknown. As described in Blood Journal, novel drivers and modifiers of MPL-dependent oncogenic transformation identified by deep mutational scanning by Bridgeford et al. Previous studies suggested that despite the clustering of mutations within a relatively small region of the thrombopoietin receptor, different mutations could be associated with either a fully active or only partially active phenotype. These observations inspired the question, which specific variants can fully activate the receptor and drive disease? In an effort to address this issue, the authors used deep mutagenesis combined with expression of all possible mutated receptors in a cytokine-dependent hematopoietic cell line and selection in the absence of cytokines as a readout for receptor activation in the absence of ligand. The authors performed a meticulous examination 
that included substituting each of the possible 19 amino acid residues. At each of the 29 positions of the chosen juxtamembrane transmembrane region of the MPL receptor. This resulted in creating 580 different mutations, which had to be individually expressed in the cytokine dependent cell line, BAF3, to determine if they caused some level of cytokine independent growth. The investigation detected an enrichment for the classical S505N and W515 mutations but also identified seven additional novel mutations, each of which could induce full cytokine independence. Taking the next step, the authors repeated the study by inserting mutations using the same strategy to determine whether the constitutive signaling of a canonical MPL S505N mutant could be further enhanced by another mutation in cis. By applying the deep sequencing approach to a template of MPL S505N, Instead of wild-type MPL, the team discovered a much larger number of mutations that could further augment the already significant transforming activity of the known S505N mutation. As one example of many, mutations at H499 significantly augmented the constitutive signaling by the canonical activating MPL S505N mutation. Thus, this approach has allowed the rapid identification and testing of novel double mutants. According to Bridgeford and colleagues, the results point to specificity and conformation requirements for each specific activating mutation, with only one or two substitutions exerting an enhancing effect at a specific position. In addition, most of the single activating mutations were positioned on one helical face of the transmembrane domain, possibly using polar interactions to promote dimerization. We must keep in mind, however, that further studies are required to establish the precise structural requirements for activation. Overall, the authors discovered that more than 90 different second-site mutations enhanced the activity of MPL S505N, including novel weak mutations at H499, G503, G509, and S493. Remarkably, the investigation exposed subtle differences where V501A was stronger at enhancing S505N, while V501S was more effective as a single mutation. In addition, the deep sequencing approach on MPL S505N uncovered second-site mutations that antagonize S505N activation. What some consider most exciting is that these data might offer leads to specific inhibitory strategies for MPL S505N. After careful examination of published and unpublished data from Exxon 10 sequencing of 2,452 MPN patients, showed that some of the seven novel identified variants and several double mutations were, in fact, detected in MPN patients. The authors note, that the deep mutagenesis and next-generation sequencing used here could be extended to any region of MPL and other cytokine receptors or signaling protein, either wild-type or already mutated, which allows for a control of the representation of each of the possible mutants in the initial library. This approach eliminates biases and could allow the selection for activators and inhibitors of signaling, provided selection is available. 
Although it does not control for defects in cell surface localization or expression of a particular mutant at the protein level, it does offer a unique and formidable way to predict which mutations might lead to oncogenic activity. Outstandingly, the identification of an MPL mutation in patients that allows constitutive signaling is very likely to mean the identification of a potential driver mutation, a classification which is necessary for mutations to be confirmed in functional assays. It should be noted, however, that some of the mutations detected in this study in factor-dependent cell lines have not yet been described in patient samples but the results provide a compendium of MPL mutations that may yet be detected in clinical samples in the future. All in all, the authors offer a useful reference for possible activating mutations in MPL's transmembrane domain, which provides a diagnostic guide and further understanding of the structural requirements that lead to MPL activation. Our final topic examines discoveries by the authors of the blood article entitled Complement Activity and Complement Regulatory Gene Mutations Are Associated with Thrombosis in Antiphospholipid Syndrome and Catastrophic Antiphospholipid Syndrome. This timely study by Chattervedi et al. demonstrates the role of complement activation in the Antiphospholipid Syndrome, or APS, and further describes a high prevalence of germline mutations and complement regulatory genes in patients with the most severe form of APS, called catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, or CAPS. As described by the authors, the antiphospholipid syndrome is an acquired thrombophilic state in which thrombosis and or obstetric morbidity are associated with the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies, known as APL. There are three known APL antibodies, and those patients with all three antibodies, a condition referred to as triple positive syndrome, have the highest risk of recurrent thrombosis. However, the cause of the antiphospholipid syndrome is not yet clear. Animal studies have suggested that the presence of complement factors in sera is associated with thrombotic events. Here, the authors studied a group of 59 patients with thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome and another group of 10 patients with CAPS using a test called the modified HAM test to measure the presence of complement activation products, including C5B to C9 in serum. Two separate groups of patients served as controls, including a cohort of patients with systemic lupus and also a cohort of pregnant women with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. Further, genomic DNA was collected from blood cells. The results showed that there was a positive correlation between the presence of complement activation, as measured by the HAM test, and thrombosis. While 36% of patients with thrombotic APS were positive, 86% of patients with CAPS were positive, compared to only 7% of patients with SLE without thrombosis. Not surprisingly, a positive HAM test was also associated with the presence of triple antibodies. Further, Patients with a positive HAM test were more likely to have multiple episodes of thrombosis. The patients with CAPS, or catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, were of particular interest. The diagnosis of CAPS in these patients was made when they have a history of APS or APL 
with three or more new organ thromboses within a week, histologic confirmation of microthrombus, and exclusion of other causes. In an innovative approach to discover why some patients develop CAPS and other patients with antiphospholipid syndrome do not, the authors sequenced 15 genes known to regulate complement function and discovered that while APS patients had a mutation rate comparable to systemic lupus erythematosus patients and normal controls, 60% of those with CAPS had an identifiable pathogenic mutation, a rate as high or higher than that seen in the atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. The authors suggest that while the antiphospholipid syndrome requires a single complement amplifying trigger, the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome is more likely to occur in a patient who experiences the same trigger in the context of hereditary mutations that increase the amount of complement activation. These mutations in complement regulatory proteins are believed to cause either a loss of function of complement inhibitory proteins or a gain of function in complement activating proteins. These findings raise several important questions. Should APS patients also undergo mutational analysis to assess risk for CAPS? Should patients receive ongoing complement inhibitor therapy in addition to anticoagulation if the modified HAM test suggests increased complement activity or flow cytometry, or flow cytometry shows increased terminal complement C5B-9 deposition, which anticoagulant is ideal? The need for long-term anticoagulation to reduce recurrent thrombosis is clear, and the use of oral anticoagulants have significantly improved our management strategies in most thrombotic conditions. However, when the TRAPS trial was terminated prematurely, due to an increase in both thromboembolic events and major bleeding in the rivaroxaban arm when compared to warfarin, their use in APS was put into question, inspiring even more questions. Should a patient subsequently found to have a positive HAM test be switched to warfarin when they appear clinically stable on their current therapy? Could the modified HAM test be used to determine which patients must be treated with warfarin or safely treated with a direct oral anticoagulant. In the future, it will be interesting to observe whether the modified HAM test and mutational testing will identify a subset of patients who are low risk for recurrence and may be able to stop long-term anticoagulation. Ideally, the next step will be to evaluate these findings in larger cohorts of patients, along with further clinical studies to determine the efficacy of complement inhibitor therapy in patients with APS and CAPS. Thankfully, the authors have advanced our understanding of this rare and challenging condition and provided a strong foundation on which to base our future research. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.